0: Hello and welcome to Lost in the Story. My guest today is a writer, director, and actor. You'll know them as the host of Port Center, the creator of the webcomic Jump Leads, a co-writer and actor on Typecast, and the GM on the Doctor Who live-play RPG, The Game of Rassilon. Please welcome Ben Patton. Welcome. Hello. Hello, hello. How are you doing? Pretty good. So I have a very simple question that is not at all uh, hyperbolic. Uh, What to you makes a great story, Ben?
1: Oh, God, that's a hell
0: of a question. Um, A
1: great story is a story where you are invested in the outcome, in the way that the plot points kind of develop. Um, A great story does not necessarily have to be uplifting. It doesn't necessarily have to be escapism. It just has to be a story that uh, you want to know the outcome. If you don't want to know the outcome of the story, if you're not interested in how the story unfolds and resolves itself, um, if indeed it does resolve itself because some things are ongoing. I think we just hit episode 1000 of One Piece or something recently. <laughs> um, but if you want to, a good story has you wanting to know what happens next up to and sometimes beyond the very end. And that to me is what makes a a good story.
0: So is it, is it more, because I, the, the, the thing that I, I hear from people is either, you know, oh, it has to be a good character or the story has to be good or in other cases, it's if the structure is good, then I know the story and characters will be good. Is there a a particular version of that that applies for you when you're looking for a good story or is it very? I think that... I think for me, it's like if you can nail two out of three of those,
1: I'm happy. Like if the structure is good and the characters are good or the structure is good and the setting is good or the characters and the setting are good. I think that good characters um, and an interesting setting can sometimes elevate uh, a disappointing structure. Or I think good structure and an interesting setting um, can sometimes paper over the cracks of, of uninteresting characterization. Ideally, you want all three. Ideally, you want all three to be great i i think ca- that characters need to be there needs to be something compelling about them like they don't i don't think they necessarily need to be i know you, i'm probably i'm sure this is not how you intended the word good but they don't need to be good people to be interesting hmm. characters like i mean for example look at uh shows like uh seinfeld or it's always sunny in philadelphia or breaking bad like these are shows about people who are fundamentally unpleasant like you would not want to go uh to to the bar from it's always sunny you probably wouldn't want to go on a date with uh the character jerry seinfeld from the hit nbc sitcom seinfeld um but we love watching these things happen we love watching these things occur because the characters are compelling
0: and is there sort of a catharsis of, of going i'm nothing like that but it's so interesting to watch these broken people do things i don't even
1: necessarily think it's it's cathartic i think it's just You know, there are definitely there are bad characters who have done shitty things who are unpleasant to be around um, in real life. And what we do is we don't interact with those people. (laughs) If we have a choice, like sometimes it's like a co-worker or a uh, or a family member. Like you you can't you don't always have the option of not talking to that racist uncle at Thanksgiving unless it's 2020 and you didn't go to Thanksgiving because you're a good person. You're socially distancing. Uh, We don't always have those choices. Uh, whereas I think the interesting thing about good storytelling is you can write a crappy person as a, as, a, as a character. Yeah, I think characters from shows like Seinfeld and It's Always Sunny, I think that they're compelling, even though they're awful people, like they're funny. These are, these are uh, you know, these are comedies. So you know that comedy is going to be born out of their inherent crappiness. Uh, with Breaking Bad, you know, you're watching this person kind of change their life to try to pay medical bills and they're doing something that they know is bad in order to further kind of their own kind of a means to an end and and where that inevitably kind of leads leads the characters and it's it's compelling of what well, this this person's kind of how are they how are they compromising themselves and what are they what are they going to do next what are the consequences of the things that they've already done what they're about to do like that's that's what's compelling. That's the reason why we gravitate towards shows like this. Like characters don't. I love it. Don't get me wrong. I love a great character. I love a good guy. I love someone who's cool and friendly. But like one of my favorite TV shows of all time is Red Dwarf. It's a, I it's was a, literally yeah. about to bring that up. Yeah, Red Dwarf is one of my favorite shows because you have Lister who is there has good traits and bad traits. Like Lister is not like Lister's personal hygiene leaves a lot to be desired. Um, Lister is pushy <laughs> pushy well, maybe pushy is the wrong word but like bullies rimmer yeah. um but it's but also like i think lister has a really strong sense of right and wrong and trying to do the right thing and look out for the people that he considers to be like his crew his posse his family and that that includes to a certain extent rimmer and Crichton and the cat and kachansky and uh, then you have rimmer who is just a type am- a very type A, but like ambitious but not ambitious in the sense of i'm going to do this ambitious in the sense of wouldn't it be nice if i had this but then putting zero effort into making it happen and blaming everyone else when it doesn't like i think both characters Rimmer and lister um have positive and negative traits that make them interesting and compelling as characters but also mean that they interact with each other well like those first two seasons of red dwarf is almost 100 percent them interacting to each other Um, And occasionally external elements like, you know, the arrival of Crichton or discovering a parallel universe that's populated by female versions or, um, you know, seeing echoes from the future, stuff like that. But a lot of it, uh, particularly in those first two seasons, is them talking to and reacting from each other.
0: So in looking at media that's that's happening currently in, you know, maybe the last five years is where I tend to look at. What what do you think are? examples of of shows that very much exemplify that and do it well?
1: Um, I mean, I'm, uh, I I love Star Trek Discovery. I, I Discovery has become kind of my, my go-to program. And I was always going to be a a fan because I'm a Star Trek fan. So I was always going to watch it. Um, I will admit that I struggled with it for the first half of the season because I wasn't sure that this was what I thought Star Trek should be. Um, and then what they were trying to do clicked with me, and I, I, we, uh, with the exception of this last week, uh, because uh, it was I was working, um, we watched that show. My girlfriend and I, we watched every episode of season three, at, you know, as it's dropped, like Thursday evening. I finish work. Uh, Mandy gets home from work. We talk about dinner. Uh, and we we watch Star Trek Discovery like that's become part of our Thursday routine. Uh, I'm not waiting a couple of days, I'm not going. Oh well, I know it's on. I'll catch it later. We watch it immediately because the show is doing a really good job with um, the setting is compelling, particularly you know the setting for the first two seasons was like pre original series Star Trek, but post Enterprise. It's like ten years before the original series. And then for this third season, they've kind of, sh- I don't want to spoil anything for anyone who, who hasn't watched it yet, but they've shifted the setting a bit. Um, and we're, we've we seen more of the characters, their strengths and their failings, and and how both of those things uh, kind of contribute to the ongoing kind of serialized story that Discovery has been, has been telling. And it's been really good. This season's been so good.
0: So then on, on, a, on a similar token, what's a show that almost hit the mark, but then just like failed the landing and was sort of disappointing? I'm a lifelong fan of Doctor Who
1: and I do feel like the writing for the last two seasons has not quite been there. I love the cast. I, lo- I love Jodie Whittaker as the Doctor. I think she um, she has a lot of strengths in that role that she plays too. I love the, the, uh, the, the cast of actors who play her companions. Um, I think the problem that the show has right now, and I don't think it's necessarily a problem of oh, there are too many characters um, because other shows have uh, ensembles that are bigger than four and manage it quite well. I think the big problem that, that Doctor Who has had since Chris Chibnall took over a showrunner in 2018 is that the characters frequently are underdeveloped. Uh, a large part of the fandom has really glommed to Yaz as a character. The actress who plays Yaz is fantastic. The problem with Yaz as a character is she so rarely has anything to do. She has no... Um, we don't know enough about... We know a little bit about her history and her family, but we don't really know... like. Who is she as a person? What are the choices that she would make? And from a fandom perspective, that's great because when you have a blank canvas like that, you can put whatever you want onto the character and that has inevitably kind of been the the primary fuel for a lot of people who who ship uh, Yaz and the 13th Doctor because when you have someone who has no personality, they can basically be whatever you want them to be. For me, it's disappointing because it's not the first time that the show, that Doctor Who in its 57-year history, 58-year history, I think at this point, nearly, has had a large TARDIS crew. But it's, I think, really the first time since the last time we had this one year, which was in the 80s. We're two seasons in and we don't really know a lot about these three people. And even the character traits that we do have, like uh, Ryan has dyspraxia. So Ryan's supposed to have like a coordination issues, balance issues, and that only comes up in the narrative when they want to inject a little bit of drama. And that's not been often. Like they they leaned on it a lot at the beginning of Jodie's first season and then it kind of went away and then came back again at the very, very end as kind of a like an epilogue for his character in uh the recent new Year's special but it, it it's like a switch they're flicking it on and off when they when they think that they need it and that that to me that's bad characterization like if you, i think the dis the, the disability uh representation is important and i'm glad that they had that character have that, that that particular uh coordination disability but they weren't consistent with it and that's the problem you need you need some consistency Change is consistency because you're showing a character grow and change mm-hmm. and develop characters don't need to be like preserved in amber but if you're going to say this character has this disability or this character has this character trait, you either need to, this is harder to do and arguably shouldn't be done with a disability, I think more with a character trait. If you're gonna show them changing or switching off a character trait, you need to show that development over time, which they shouldn't be doing with a disability anyway, but they should be doing it with things like a character being like, well, I'm scared to get in the water. Okay, well, why is that character scared to get in the water? What change, if the character suddenly, you know, if a character has a fear of water, and then suddenly they're diving into, a, you know, into a, a lake to save someone, that's a that's a big radical change, and you have to justify that in some way. You either within that story, within that episode, or as like a a gradual thing that kind of leads into that moment where that character is ready to say, "Okay, I'm going to jump into this lake." That's not a specific example from the show. That's just me saying, "Hey, water's terrifying." <laughs>
0: Well, going back to Doctor Who then, because this is a, a thing that I, I've noticed, and I find it interesting, especially in a, a series that's supposed to be like, you know, 13 episodes. The issue that I've noticed a lot in, like, American television, for example, if you look at the, and, you know, the, these uh, sets of shows have their flaws, but I was surprised that the overall quality of them, and that's the CW superhero shows. Mm. And But the big issue that they run into, and I think I think it's starting to shift in terms of how they do things, is, you know those shows are 22 to 23 episodes a season. Mm. The big issue that they run into and I'm curious if because I've only watched the first season so I'm not sure I'm not sure how uh, the first season of Jody I'm not sure how it's it's progressed is You know, for example, on The Flash, when they introduced Kid Flash into the show, it became, okay. there's 23 uh, episodes. Uh, We still have to get to the big bad at the end and beat him. But we have two speedsters now. How do we bench the other speedster so he is not an issue and fucks up with the story? Do you find that is an issue in this with this current setup of companions and uh, to follow up with that? Does there feel like there's an overarching plot that's been happening in Jodie's story or does it feel very monster of the week right now? Um with regards to the companions, I don't think the show has
1: ever um over these first two seasons gone to deliberate lengths to kind of bench companions. It did there was an episode in Jodie's most recent season which aired nearly a year ago now well, wow, um that does bench three of the companions uh, uh, two or three of the companions. So that the Doctor is kind of free to kind of explore this uh, story thing that happens, which does have ramifications. Like Doctor Who has always been by its very nature, very monster of the week. But -hmm. there have always been kind of certain serialized elements. If you think about when Christopher Eccleston was the Doctor, there's Bad Wolf. And when you have David Tennant, you have um, Torchwood and you have Mr. Saxon and all of that stuff.
0: I see that as more of a modern
1: Who Yeah. Um, Yeah, that's not something the classic series did a lot. It did a little bit at the end of Sylvester McCoy's era. There are certain stories, particularly in his... He had three seasons, his last two seasons. There are certain stories that kind of tie together in telling the story of, of, of the Seventh Doctor kind of trying to steer his companion Ace in a particular direction and having her kind of face certain fears that she has. The benching actually, speaking of classic Doctor 2, was something that happened more in the fifth Doctor's era. The fifth Doctor was the last Doctor to have what they called the crowded TARDIS where they have three companions and the Doctor. So there was a point where you had the Doctor, Nissa, Tegan and Adric, and then the Doctor Nissa, Tegan and Turlo and then uh, eventually one by one they left and then we got the doctor just having perry and then perry is replaced by another companion and so on and so on but there was this period where they had three companions one of whom was slightly psychic and she would mm-hmm. frequently i'd say i think frequently over i think fandom is kind of over egged how frequently this happened it happened often enough that it was a thing where she would just have a headache or be psychically attacked and pass out and then she's not present for like Three or four episodes, or she's barely present for three or four episodes, which used to happen a lot in the classic series when like William Hartnell had a vacation booked, or um <laughs> Fraser Hines, who played uh who played Jamie, had chicken pox. So they replace him with a different actor for an episode, but they can get away with it because it works in the narrative. Um, interesting side note: William, the last surviving episode of William Hartnell's uh tenure as the doctor, the last one we have like the video of. Um because we have audio of all of them, William Hartnell is not in the last surviving episode because he was he had to call out sick. But yeah, like benching companions used to happen uh, a little bit during the 80s and was an infrequent thing in the class, in like the 60s when actors you know had a week off of a you know vacation or illness um because they were shooting it at like a soap opera pace. They were doing an episode a week for like 45 weeks. i I haven't noticed that so much with the new series apart from I think maybe one or two episodes
0: in this one I I you know you sort of touched on it but it, is there an arcing story sort of how Moffat sort of had one sort of weave throughout all of his or does it seem to be jumping back and forth trying to figure that out
1: well Chris Chibnall has been very vocal about the fact that he has this you know this big 5-year plan he has a 5-year plan for what he wants to do with Doctor Who and he definitely started he like seeded it in a throwaway episode in in Jodie's first season and that kind of came back in a big way in the second season. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna spoil anything because I'm sure there are people here who, you know, would like to watch Jody's run and haven't because it's not on Netflix anymore, it's all on HBO Max. I think Chibnall had a plan, has a plan. I think there's still like three years left of the plan that he's got, but like his plan feels less, even though he does have this five-year plan, it feels less locked, not locked in, but like it feels less cohesive than say like the bad wolf thing in Russell T Davies' first year with Christopher Eccleston bad wolf was not an original like that he didn't go in thinking yeah we're going to have this arc word. it's going to be bad wolf It's going to weave through all the episodes like a uh, like a piece of string and no like bad wolf was just because uh, like someone on the uh, uh someone in the set design team decided let's have the doctor's TARDIS be vandal or the Do- doctor's TARDIS gets vandalized during that episode and they said well we'll have it sprayed with the words bad wolf and that stuck with Russell T Davies and he kind of wove it through the first season, and now like I can't, th- I can't picture that first season without those words "bad wolf" yeah. kind of weaving through it, like arcing through the whole thing. Like that ties that season together, and, and becomes prevalent again when Rose reappears at the end of season four. Some things, some creative choices happen because it's a spur of the moment thing and everyone goes, oh yeah, that's really good. Yeah. And then that sticks. And some stuff, like I think some of the stuff that Chibnall has done with Jody's arc, is stuff that he has presumably been planning for years and years and years, but it doesn't feel consistent. It doesn't feel like this is what I've been building towards. It feels like, oh, we have to do this thing now, so we're doing it. Like It doesn't feel organic, it just feels like stuff happening. And that's not great storytelling. Like you can have a big idea, but if you're not executing on it in a way that again feels organic, that feels you know cohesive, then it can feel disconnected when that when those big reveals
0: finally so happen. It, does it does it sort of feel like how everyone now describes the prequels for Star Wars, which was great ideas, interesting characters, but not executed in the best way it could have been.
1: Oh yeah, like I think that. I mean, there's a, there's a there's a whole other debate to be had about whether or not making uh, making the prequel trilogy for Star Wars about a kind of political coup, mm-hmm. uh, whether that's the story that should have been told in those movies. But George Lucas had ideas that mm-hmm. run through all three of those movies when he was when they were working on Episode One. Lucas knew more or less where he wanted or needed to be by the end of episode three, which is kind of by virtue of the nature that it's a prequel series anyway. So you need mm-hmm. that, you you know, kind of what your end going to be more or less, because it more kind of leads into the original trilogy, even though there's a, a time gap that massively, massively ages Aunt Baru and Uncle Owen. <laughs> the um, desert, the deserts of Tatooine de- are. Desert, yeah. Oh, Two suns. Two suns dries out your skin. You need to moisturize more. And this is coming from me, a person who's moisturized seven times in the last 35 years. Um, Yeah, you you really need to moisturize your your Ben Kenobi's. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, uh, you got you, you to keep your Ben Kenobi's moist. You got to keep a little water dish out for them. Uh, you need to have a nice open spaces where they can run around and play. Uh, they need regular exercise. You have to take your Ben Kenobi for a walk at least twice a day. And they
0: have to murder at least
1: two Tuscan Raiders. You do have to murder at least two Tus- it's not as People always think that's two a day. You don't have to do two a day. You can do two a month. It's actually not as severe as, as people think. Two a month is fine. Two a month is more than enough activity um, for, for for a Ben Kenobi. But you've got to remember, like, if you're going to adopt a Kenobi, that's a commitment, and you need to be ready and willing to, to, to do what you need to do. Wait, do you um, mean old Ben Kenobi? The one who uh, lives up on the Dune Sea? Po- probably. Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, the prequel trilogy was at least about something and had like cohesion to it. Whereas yeah. the sequel trilogy... I love the first two movies in the trilogy. I love The Force Awakens. I love The Last Jedi. And The Rise of Skywalker, I think, squandered a lot of the goodwill from both of those movies. Whether people like The Last Jedi or not is going to be a thing that people debate from now until the end of time itself. Our sun will burn out and there will not be a firm answer to that question. But The Last Jedi is about something. The Force Awakens still is about something. That something might be J.J. Abrams setting up a puzzle box and going, all right, figure out what you're going to do. Peace, Bye! Uh, but you know that third movie. When you don't, you need to have. If you're going to do a trilogy and you're te- sitting down and intending to say these are three stories that tell a ho- cohesive whole, yeah, you need to have that cohesion in place before you you film a single frame, yeah, of that first film. And that's the problem that the sequel trilogies have. What
0: trends in in media in all forms in terms of writing and and storytelling? Have you seen, again, in the last like five or so years, that have been something that has really made you happy?
1: I mean, the push towards serialized storytelling in in, in television, like this idea that TV shows have to reset at the end of every episode, uh, that's a very old-fashioned view of television. That's, mm-hmm. that's something that's kind of now still, even sitcoms don't really do that anymore. Like, look at the Big Bang Theory. Like, the Big Bang Theory would often end on, you know, like, big moments that kind of change, sometimes change character dynamics. The uh, the shows that I watched as a kid were things like, you know, I'm a big Star Trek fan, I've mentioned that before, but like Deep Space Nine was one of my favorite shows uh, growing up and is, I think, one of my favorite Star Trek shows. Because the station is in, its, it, it's in a stationary location, it doesn't move, it doesn't go anywhere. When they make choices on that station, they have to kind of live with the consequences. And then that kind of expands out into DS9 being a key location in the Dominion War. And they kind of have to live with the ramifications of their choices, both on the station and kind of in the, the Alpha Quadrant uh, broadly and generally and specifically, and more importantly, hungrily. Um, yes, It's a dumb joke, but I'm going to push on. Uh, so that, that kind of serialised storytelling was something that I was already kind of used to in... Uh, you know, through Deep Space Nine. And I'm sure there are a couple of other shows. Like I remember Captain Planet doing a couple of like stories that were like two or three part episodes. Power Rangers, probably. Mighty Morphin Power Rangers was probably my earliest exposure to serialized storytelling when they go, the the, the Ninja Ranger arc where they have to get their new powers from mm-hmm. Ninja. I forget the name of the character. But like, I remember that as an arc. And then you had the Mighty Morphin Alien Rangers, which again is an arc. And um And now, like that's commonplace. Like you have things like Battlestar Galactica, which is like four seasons and a a mini series that kind of all is constantly building on what has come. Breaking Bad again, like is another key example. Like you have shows that people are passionate about, where they want to see what happens next. It's not just about what, what what scrapes is Walter White gonna get into this week. It's what is he gonna get up to this week, and how? What are the ramifications of what he did last week? like that's where we are now where serialized storytelling is kind of an ongoing like that's that's kind of the norm for television now it's we are um and i kind of think in a way reality tv has also kind of uh led to that because reality tv you know things like just pulling a show off the top of my head 90 day fiance like that's an ongoing story about uh about couples from different sides of the world kind of coming together and 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 getting their their visa so that they can get married in the United States and they have 90 days in which to do that. That's those, These are ongoing narratives. you know. Even keeping up with the Kardashians and the Osbournes had like through lines and threads occasionally. Um, I think reality TV has kind of shifted where scripted television has gone. Scripted television has always kind of done um, serialized television. I mean, look at soaps, look at things like Days of Our Lives and EastEnders, like that's serialized television in its purest form. But it's more common now to see that on primetime, you know, Star Trek, the next generation, they leave, they, they leave whatever mission they were on and then it's never mentioned again. Uh, Now, Discovery, Star Trek Discovery is, you know, about to reach the end of its third season and it's been consistently telling a story since like the Mm -hmm. first episode of season one, you know.
0: So then sort of jumping off of that in terms of continuing narrative can speak to this is uh so you run a game called the game of rassilon yes uh s- it yeah. go ahead go ahead go ahead explain say, what it is
1: yeah it is a uh it is an actual play podcast um we're playing a tabletop rpg so there are a few podcasts out there that do this um, the Adventure really? Zone does this, Dungeons and Daddies. Um, there's a little known uh, streaming show that you might be familiar with called Critical Role that kind of does this. Huh. And those are all kind of Dungeons and Dragons. But we're playing the Doctor Who role-playing game. So we have our own Doctor, who's played by Riley Silverman in her own TARDIS with her companions. We have Travis, who's played by Dan Peck. And we have Carrie, who's played by Kate Lay. And it's we have our own It's our own kind of... It, the, the pitch internally for us and between me and my friend Michael Nixon who I kind of planned the campaign with is if we were the showrunners of Doctor Who what stories would we want to tell and so we spent our our first two seasons uh, which you can listen to all online by searching for the game of Rassilon in your podcasting apparatus of preference to all tell kind of that's one whole story but separated into Individual, like two to four part adventures in the same way that you know, classic Doctor Who would do, or modern Doctor Who kind of does as well. And we're about to start, like, our third season drops, starts in March. Um, we're already recording it because we record way in advance because we are uh control freaks and we're very, we're very anal about uh, you know, things like backlogs and so on. Um, but the third season is going to be more st- kind of standalone than the first two seasons were. But we knew going into the beginning of planning season one where we were kind of building towards the difference with an actual play podcast as I think anyone who runs as a GM or a DM on an actual play show will tell you is that you can only throw the scenarios at the characters you do not get to decide what the characters are going to do and that's one of the things I love about uh, tabletop role-playing and GMing and DMing as a whole is like I love building worlds and letting players loose in them and having them follow narrative threads or you know, saying, here's a story, how do you react? And players controlling characters are going to make completely different decisions and choices than you would make if you were sitting and writing down a narrative story.
0: I have I've I found it interesting with uh, the amount of D&D and other sort of things that I, I absorb, how uh, it's a fewfold. It's, it's a good, uh, I feel, creative exercise for both the players and the GM. Mm. And it's a good way to engage in creative uh, storytelling. And I'm I'm curious if you have taken a lot of lessons, specifically running this show, but also I know you've run other things, to when you write now, does it help you improvise more, as it were, on the fly? Like, if you run into a story issue, does it help you problem-solve more?
1: I, God, I don't want to sound too up my own ass about this, but I, I think that one of the reasons why I enjoy tabletop role-playing and, and serving as a GM a role-playing game is I think it plays into my strengths as a writer I'm not good with like I'm not a sit down and write an outline person I'm not a sit down and figure out a a treatment person I'm a I have an idea for a story in my head and I'm going to sit down and type it and sometimes the characters will do things that I would not have if I'd planned it they wouldn't have done that's the person I am so I think that approach to storytelling works well when you're GMing or DMing a, a tabletop game. I think that I take my writing sensibility into my tabletop as opposed to the other way round. You know, there are a lot of writers who will say things like, well, so my characters really do have a life of their own. I was writing the other day and a character did something I really wasn't expecting. It's like they're their own person. That's tabletop gaming because your characters are literally controlled by other people. All you can do is, is kind of throw story and scenario and location at them and see how,
0: how they react. Another interesting thing that I pointed out before too is uh, I see a lot in roleplay things, representation in player and just story-wise that I then will see a few years later on mainstream. In particular, my first introduction to the term non-binary came from watching uh, a Star Trek... Uh, no, sorry, a Doctor Who role play show. <laughs> and it was a uh, individual named Sam DeLev. And I had no idea what that was, learned through the course of watching the show, and then by virtue uh, met a friend at a... The, this thing we were talking about earlier, critical role sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I, yeah, think, yeah. I think it's R-O-L-E? I think. I uh, think, yeah. And uh, sort of... Met them at this event, and then was at a, uh, a thing at WonderCon, and was talking, and then it it dawned on me, based on conversation through the night, oh he him. So I, I one of the first things I asked in getting to know him was, what's your preferred pronouns? And he told me later that so rarely does anyone sort of you know lead with that. Yeah. That <laughs> he went in it, it immediately endeared me to you and then <laughs> made me feel very comfortable. And then, you know, jumping forward to that is then, you know, in the last, I don't know, couple years, I've seen that much more, be much more prevalent, like, you know, in the new Star Wars uh, uh, Squadrons game. Bex Klaus plays a non-binary character in the game. There's a character on the show Billions, I think it's called. Okay. I, I can't re- remember, but I, I'm seeing it more and more yeah. mainstream. I mean, one of the things with tabletop games, firstly,
1: Tabletop, tabletop RPGs and RPGs generally are a, if you're playing with people you know and that you trust, they're a great safe space to kind of explore your gender identity. Like you can be, you can roll a character who is a gender that is different from the one you currently identify with and feel safe to like explore that space. And like, I think tabletop gaming played a massive role in in my exploration of my own gender identity and being able to come out as, as non-binary and, and announce, you know, I'm, I use they, them pronouns. I think that was hu- hugely important to me because I had that space, particularly in the first season of the game of Rastlon. Like I went out of my way to include, um, you know, non-binary characters and gender non-conforming characters, not just because I thought it was good representation but because that was something that I needed to explore within myself as well but I also think that one of the reasons why it happens quickly on actual play podcasts and shows like uh, Critical Role there's an immediacy there they're sitting down they're playing now they are doing that now Mm -hmm. Um, with our podcast we're playing now in the moment even though the show is not going to be released for like two or three months that's still a shorter window than say if you know the producers of supergirl decide to include a non-binary character in you know their next season they have to sit down and think about you know how do, wh- how are we writing this character what is what are their character traits what are their pronouns um how do we go about casting this character there's a lot of decisions that go in at, at, on a production level yeah. before they they they've cast a person they're filming it it's being you know post production
0: airing or, you know all of that stuff and that happened you know yeah. that with supergirl the, they have a, the first trans uh, superhero character. Oh, that's on cool. Sh- I, I haven't seen
1: anything past the first episode. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so, so yeah, so uh, two seasons ago, their first trans character as a superhero, and and I think it's been on for the last three seasons, and you know their sh- the show is ending awesome. with the sixth season. Yeah. And that was the first time that, something that mainstream had that. I, I thought you knew that's what you were No, saying. genuinely <laughs> didn't. No, I watched the first
1: episode and kind of talk about like storytelling my biggest—I watched the first episode and felt like they were trying to stuff so much into forty-five minutes, like set up so many things that better. I felt it just <laughs> felt noisy to me. And oh, I yeah. haven't gone back to the show since. I know a lot of people like like uh, like Supergirl, and a lot of people like the the DC stuff that uh, the WB does. I I do find a lot of it noisy because it feels like they tr- they try to do too much too quickly. Yeah, um, I also is, think it's
0: the bloated bloatedness of the 23. I, I honestly think we should adopt the British model, which yeah. I feel we are slowly, in terms of streaming, doing that.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, Star Trek Discovery ha- has, you know, their seasons have been 12 to 15 episodes. Like, that's um, Star Trek Lower Decks, which is visually is animated, but, like, that's a 10-episode season. That, that, to me, Picard was a 10-episode season as well. Like, that, to me, is, if you are, particularly if you're trying to tell a serialized story, the old model of we're going to crank out 22 to 25 episodes for a season, that's going to go away because you, in order to, to do that and to knock out episodes on a regular basis, you have to do filler. Like there's yeah. so much filler in Star Trek The Next Generation, particularly from their fifth season onwards. Star Trek Voyager inherited a lot of the production crew from Star Trek The Next Generation and started the year after TNG ended either the year after or the same year that TNG ended and the first season of Voyager to me um for all of the things I love about Voyager that first season of Voyager has a lot of the same problems as a show that has been running for eight years because Hmm. it inherits the same crew uh not that literally the characters crew but like the production crew um and the same kind of universe as that as TNG that came before it
0: Um, I think and I know it's not a show that you watch, but I think things like The Mandalorian being eight episodes and then coming forward with the all the Marvel stuff, which are going to be, you know, I believe six to eight at most. Yeah, uh, I think that is going to prove to people that that is a very viable way to make shows. But I think people are very much stuck in the but it has to be 22. We have to have a fall season. How can we do this? How can we do this with such a short episode? Don't run. that. Yeah, and you know
1: what's even better is the more I watch shows on uh, CBS All Access and Disney Plus, the more I dislike the Netflix model of like here you go, here's a full Stranger Things three, here's a full season, <laughs> bye. Like I don't, I don't like that because the thing I like about one episode a week, like we've had with uh, the new Star Trek stuff, like we've had with The Mandalorian, like we're about to have with, I hope that we're about to have with the MCU stuff on Disney. It Plus. is going to be. Yeah, is we get we get we get one episode a week. And that means everyone is talking about the same thing. Everyone is talking about, here's what happened this week in The Mandalorian. Here's what happened this week in Star Trek Picard. When you drop a whole season, like a whole season, people are going to talk about that for a few weeks, a month, and then it kind of goes away. Like people don't talk about Stranger Things when they haven't just dropped a season. When you have eight weeks of The Mandalorian, people are talking about The Mandalorian for eight weeks and beyond. And they're all on the same page. You can't have a pop culture conversation about... Stranger Things 4 when that drops, because everyone is going to be watching it at their own pace. pace Some people yeah. are going to like binge the whole season in the day it drops. Some people are going to be like, Well, I'll watch an episode a day. Some people are going to watch it as and when they can get to it, which is how I watch Stranger Things, and I'm not finished with season one yet. Like, but like for, for the Star Trek stuff, that's become appointment viewing for us. For we yeah. we sit down and we watch that the day it releases. Same with Doctor Who, you know, we and it means that everyone who is talking about that show. Um, is in the same place, and also like just in terms of like a social media SEO perspective, it means that if you have a twelve episode season, you know that people will be talking about this thing for twelve weeks, and then a little bit after the end. Yeah, With, if you drop a whole season at once, people are going to talk about it for a maybe month. a week. Yeah, yeah. A, a month optimistically.
0: I always think about this in terms of uh, the release thing. I had this teacher uh, when I went to Csun it was a it was a marketing class and he was a he was a madman person like that was his era Yeah. And he worked at NBC from like the end of the 60s into early 2000s and we were talking about streaming services and he goes you know he goes he goes here's my prediction. I really like this teacher. He was really funny. Here's my, here's my prediction. In the next like 4 or 5 years how we watch media in terms of episodic you know right now it's everything is binge binge binge. It is going to go back Everything is going to be the same model. The only difference is is how you get those things. It's going to be over, you know, set top boxes uh, on apps on your TV, but it's just going to be cable again. Yeah. That's exactly Uh, what it's becoming.
1: I predict, I don't want to sound like a ponce, but I predicted in uh, God, when I was like maybe seven or eight years old, I remember telling kids in my class, like, this, this is gonna turn into the Michael Scott, I imagine what a unicorn was. I just pictured a horse with a sword on his head. But when I, was, when I was like seven or eight years old, I remember telling kids in my class, I think at some point in the future, you won't have to, if you wanna watch a new episode of the Simpsons, you won't have to sit down in front of the TV at six o'clock on a Sunday to watch the Simpsons. It will become available at that time and you can start to watch it whenever you want. And that's kind of what we've got now um, particularly with the, you know, the way that Hulu mostly drops their new shows and Disney Plus does their stuff and CBS All Access does their stuff. We're kind we're kind of going back to that model of, oh, this episode drops at this day. So there's some stuff that doesn't need, you don't need a weekly drop for the Animaniacs reboot. Like that that <laughs> does not need to be, yeah. we don't need you to be like, here's 20 minutes of Animaniacs, see it in a week. Like you can, yeah. that's a show that doesn't have, it's not serialized, it doesn't have continuity. Drop the whole show, get through it in your own pace. That's what I did with Animaniacs. Like I sat down, with Mandy and watched the full first season of the Animaniacs reboot and loved it. But that doesn't work for something like say, you know, Better Call Saul or Stranger Things because when it's a serialized show, you have people watching at different paces and you lose the water cooler discussions about, oh God, did you see this this week? Like, you know, when Baby Yoda's name was revealed on the Mandalorian or whenever like characters from elsewhere in Star Wars, canon would make appearances in the show like that was the thing that was being discussed on social media
0: yeah that week. sort of going in for the the descent the last two things uh in sort of uh, in juxtaposition to the thing i asked two questions ago which is <laughs> 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 yeah i know no 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 this is this is i i wanted to go this direction what to you in media right now are things that we still desperately need to work on things that are being worked on a little bit, but not enough or things that are just being completely ignored that are in need of fixing. Uh, Representation
1: is hugely important and mainstream media television uh, films, I think it's very slow to, uh, to pull the trigger on representing different groups, different ethnicities more frequently, different uh, sexual orientations, different genders, gender identities um, they're slow to do that because there's this loud group of mostly white, mostly men who don't like when it am not about them. And they can't. They don't know how to process. Like, I remember adults that my mum knew complaining that there was a black guy on Sin City. Uh, or Spin City, <laughs> sorry. Uh, when That that sitcom was like, the one with Michael J. Fox. Mm-hmm like there was there was an black guy on that show and that was oh well that's that's just that's just tokenism and and to a certain extent yeah i think when you just have one person that is tokenism but i think that you know at that point that's progress and i think there are people who will push back against that progress and they'll use words like tokenism oh well that's just I don't see why they need to be there. I don't see I don't see why this character needs to be a woman. Like people complaining that they made Starbuck a woman in the in the Galactica reboot. Like I don't see why she needs to be a woman. Well, why does she need to be a man? What about being a an outer space fighter pilot who smokes cigars requires um a man in the role? You tell me. There are people still now in the year of our laws, 20 and 21, um, who complain about the fact that Jodie Whittaker is playing the Doctor. What about the Doctor requires that character to be male?
0: It was my favorite, one of my favorite lines between Capaldi and Bill, where where he was like, uh, gender doesn't really matter. Yeah. (laughs) I remember finding that very funny. So then to, to bring it in for a landing, what, in terms of creativity, writing, acting, all that stuff, what was that one thing for you that made you go, I, I need to do that too. I, I, oh, I need yeah. to put my, my voice out there. I think I was three
1: or four when I learned to read. And I learned to read Overachiever, because, got it. Man. Uh, it might've been, <laughs> might been four or five. But the, it, I learned <laughs> to read because there was this computer game that my cousin Andy was playing on our Amiga 500. And the computer game was The Secret of Monkey Island. And I was captivated by the the visuals, the art style, um, the impressive use of 16 colors. Um, I like I, Monkey Island. Like visually, was just stunning to me. But I couldn't tell what was happening. And when I was final, when I was finally able to read the dialogue and kind of play the game myself, seeing this character saying these funny things and this story unfolding, I think I was. I mean, I was I was still quite young. I played Monkey Island a lot as a kid, but I think I may have been about seven or eight when I was playing the game and realized, hey, people wrote. This People wrote the, the words that Guybrush Threepwood is saying on the screen right now, people wrote that. And and they wrote all the other things you can say, and all the different reactions to the things that could be said to that. Like someone had to sit down and write down, you fight like a dairy farmer, and then sit down and write how appropriate you fight like a cow. They had to write LeChuck obsessing over, um, over Governor Marley. They had to write Guybrush's journey to becoming... It wasn't just like building building puzzles, it was about building a world and dialogue and characters and characterization. And the minute that all clicked in my head, in my tiny little mind, I realized I want to be the person who gets to decide what the characters on the screen says. Like that's that's when it all clicked for me. Was that was 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 Monkey Island. And Monkey Island is kind of my Star Wars. I didn't I didn't have a Star Wars phase as a kid. I'm very I would say I'm a very recent convert to Star Wars. I think you were kind of present. For yeah. that, when when that began, like five six years ago, um, but Monkey Island is my Star Wars. Right? It's very much so my Star Wars, and it was hugely influential on me as a kid, both in terms of my sense of humor and what I wanted to
0: to do for a career. And that's what you you hope to accomplish with your with your many projects.
1: Yeah, I'm always trying to capture the feeling that I had when I realized, oh, someone wrote Monkey Island. Like I'm, I I want. You know, we're rebooting jump leads as audio plays. We're doing like a, you know six half-hour things, and I'm when I'm writing those stories, and I'm trying to tell you know trying to tell those stories and trying to have interesting characters and funny dialogue and stuff that makes sense. And that's that's the feeling that I'm chasing is like a, a person can do this. I can do this. I'm going to do this, and I I will continue to be doing this for the rest of my life
0: or longer. <laughs> well, we I remix my shit afterwards. Why not go for it? Uh, so I think that's going to do it for this week. But, uh, Ben, is there is there anything you would like to, to plug or where people can find you on social media if they so wish? Yeah, um, I am on social media. I'm
1: at Ben Padden on uh, Twitter and Instagram, those are kind of my main two. If you want to follow the game of wrestle on the podcast, we have two seasons up already with a third coming in March 2021. Uh, you can find that at wrestlon.com or thedeath.zone or adventures in time Or if you just go to your podcasting app and search Doctor Who role-playing game, you'll probably find us in there eventually. Jump Leads is the sci-fi comedy webcomic that I was the head writer on and the co-creator on. The comic is available to read online for free. It ended some years ago, but you can find that at jumpleads.zone. That's J-U-M-P-L-E-A-D-S dot zone. And we're working on an audio audio play reboot of that. That will be available at the same website, uh, hopefully later this year.
0: Well, uh, that's going to do it for this week, folks. Thank you so much for joining us and uh, we'll see you next time. Toodaloo! This has been Lost in the Story with your host, Wesley Marshall. Music composed by Chase Pathia, who you can follow on Twitter and TikTok at Chase Pathia and on Instagram at Gamer Composer. His website is chasepathia.com. Cover art for this podcast provided by Marcy Edwards, who you can follow on social media on Twitter and Instagram at Mary Hellscream. Thank you for listening. See you next time.